ECO Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. EcoReport is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana and financially supported by listeners like you. For WFHB, I'm Don Guerra. And I'm Juliana Daly. The City of Bloomington's Economic and Sustainable Development Department is reporting a reduction in greenhouse gas emissions in the area by 13% over the last decade. In an August 28th press release, the department reported the reduction in greenhouse emissions is partly the result of the gradually reduction in the use of coal to produce electricity. Locally at Indiana University's central heating plant, coal made up just 15% of the overall fuel used in 2016, according to the report. Energy use has decreased across multiple Bloomington sectors, including manufacturing, agriculture, and transportation. At the Sycamore Ridge Landfill, a capturing system installed in 2008, reducing methane emissions. According to the EPA, one pound of methane traps 25 times more heat in the atmosphere than a pound of carbon dioxide. According to the city's report, renewable energy systems such as wind, solar, and hydroelectric make up only about 6% of the state's total energy mix. Economic and Sustainable Development Director Alex Crowley says the study was a comparison of data that the city collected. To be you know, perfectly clear about the process by which this comparison was done, so in 2009, the study was undertaken by Bloomington, but it used 2006 data. So the study was actually a couple of years after the data became available, and then that study was compared with a uh, almost identical study of 2016 data, and that's where you get your 10-year comparison. Crowley says the reported decline in emissions comes as the city and county continue to push environmentally sustainable initiatives, like the Monroe County Energy Challenge and Solarize Bloomington. We are deploying a significant amount of solar throughout city operations between now and December 31st. Just to kind of give you a sense of it, it's about, if I'm not mistaken, about 15,000 panels and, you know, this place will be humming with in excess of 200 installers crawling all over city facilities between, in, literally in the next couple of months to get all of this done on time. So it's a massive undertaking and a massive commitment by the city of Bloomington to locally generated uh, renewable energy. The Department of Economic and Sustainable Development's full 2016 Community Greenhouse Gas Emissions Report is available online at bloomington.in.gov. And in more local news, the City of Bloomington Utilities Department will be replacing the city's water delivery pipes over several years. According to Utilities Department Director Vic Kelson, over 75% of Bloomington's water mains are over 50 years old. 
Water mains are large pipes buried under city roads and sidewalks and are the main highways through which water is moved around in cities. Kelson says that the total replacement of the city's water mains is a more cost-efficient option than repairing breaks in the pipe network as they arise. Yesterday, a water main burst on South Walnut Street, flooding several lanes of the Bloomington North-South Corridor. This is, uh, it took a lot of time to get those pipes in the ground, and it'll take a lot of time to get those pipes replaced. Uh, we're, we're planning to spend around $1.8 million per year uh, every year um, going forward for the next, you know, it's a, right now we just passed a rate case uh, and started the, the program this year. Uh, but that's going to be going on for uh, basically the foreseeable future. Kelson says the city will prioritize the replacement of water mains with a record of past issues, followed by those feeding IU Health Bloomington, schools, and neighborhoods already in line for road work. Neighborhood residents can expect temporary lack of water service during the main replacement and road patching. The disruption for the homeowners is, is typically um, pretty small. Uh, in the neighborhoods, uh, there may be cases where you'll, you'll have to drive around where our people are working. Last month's water rate increase will fund water main replacement as well as more advanced metering systems that will allow City of Bloomington utilities to monitor potential problem areas remotely. The rate increase of 20.6% was the utility's first increase since 2011. Residents now pay $3.73 per 1,000 gallons of water, up from $3.11. Residents can check water-related road closures and water main repair schedules on the city's website at bloomington.in.gov. The city of East Chicago, Indiana, is also beginning water infrastructure updates. EcoReport has reported several times on lead contamination of the city's tap water supply. Now lead service lines, the pipes that connect water mains to homes, are being replaced throughout the city. Work on the project is slow, and the city says it's shooting for May of next year for completing the work at 400 homes. According to the EPA, the project is essential to ensuring that the water is safe to drink. The agency is urging East Chicago residents to use filters to remove contaminants from the water while the line replacement is in progress. In April, the Indiana Department of Environmental Management began giving out water filters to residents after Governor Eric Holcomb declared the city a disaster area. Lake Michigan is the water source for East Chicago and the lead isn't coming from it. The treatment plant or the mains the treatment plant or the mains. Rather, it's coming from service lines and home plumbing. And in public drinking water supplies around the world, another contaminant is the source of rising concern. 83% of tap water samples from around the world contains minuscule pieces of plastic called microfibers or microplastics, according to an investigation by Orb Media. What the presence of microfibers in drinking water means for human health is cause for great concern among scientists, but has not been systematically investigated. Dr. Sherry Mason, who led the ORB study, said, quote, We have enough data on the impact that microplastic is having on wildlife to be concerned. If it's impacting wildlife, 
then how do we think that it's not going to somehow impact us, unquote. Two, two main issues stand out. First are the microfibers themselves, and second are the chemicals and pathogens that cling to such fibers. The source of microplastics in tap water is unknown, but one likely source is fibers shed by clothes and carpets. Washing machines and clothes dryers are also potential sources, as are the tire dust and paint. Unfortunately, microplastics are affecting more than just water. Scientists have just discovered that sea salt also is contaminated with microplastics in the U.S., Europe, and China. Scientists are concerned that microplastics are everywhere in the environment and entering the food chain through the salt we eat. Researchers think most of the contamination comes from plastic microfibers and single-use plastics, including water bottles. The amount of plastic entering the oceans every year is equivalent to dumping one garbage truck of plastic per minute into the oceans, according to the United Nations. The study on plastics in salt found that Americans are ingesting at least 660 plastic particles each year and probably more. The health effects of eating plastic from salt, like drinking it in tap water, are unknown. Since there exists no control group of people who have not been exposed, scientists are having trouble analyzing the impacts of plastics on the human body. A new study funded by the U.S. government has found that exposure to the air pollutant nitrogen dioxide, which comes from the burning of fuel by vehicles and power plants, is more common in people of color than in white people in this country. Exposure is linked to race much more than to income, age, or education. Though researchers and environmental justice advocates have long known about the racial disparity in pollution exposure, the study found that little progress has been made in this area in recent years. The EPA's Office of Environmental Justice has tackled the problem of pollution in communities of color for some years, but the Trump administration plans to eliminate the office. In some areas of the country, the situation has worsened. The gap in exposure between white people and people of color is most noticeable in the Midwest and California. The study concluded that the exposure has caused over 5,000 deaths from heart disease. Scientists who are seeking grants from the Environmental Protection Agency are unlikely to see any funding come their way if they mention climate change. According to recent reporting by the Washington Post, the EPO has given veto power over grants and awards to John Conkus, who goes by the title of Deputy Associate Administrator for Public Affairs. The Post notes that the EPA doles out hundreds of millions of dollars in funding and that those dollars are in essence only given with the approval of Conkus now. Caucus has reportedly told staffers that he is empowered to look for climate change and warned grant officers that the two words should not be mentioned in funding requests. The report states that Caucus has already canceled close to $2 million awarded to universities and nonprofit organizations. Former EPA head Republican Christine Todd Whitman criticized the role of Caucus, saying, quote, we didn't do a political screening on every grant because many of them were based on science and political appointees don't have that kind of background, end quote. 
Prior to serving in the EPA's Public Affairs Office, Conca served as President Donald Trump's Leon County, Florida campaign chairman and as a political consultant for hire. Conca's has a BA, a bachelor's degree, from the University of Maryland in government and politics. He has no background in science. Finally, for today's headlines, because of Hurricane Harvey, the U.S. Air Force sprayed a controversial insecticide, NALED, over more than six million acres in the Houston area, supposedly to prevent insect-borne diseases. Although NALED is EPA-approved and regulated, Europe and Puerto Rico have banned it because of the alleged unacceptable risk it poses for human health. Of greatest concern is that NALED is known to be a toxin for the nervous system and crosses the placental barrier, thereby entering the fetus's body from the mother's. U.S. studies have shown that pregnant women exposed to NALED had a 60% higher than normal chance of giving birth to an infant with an autism spectrum disorder. Increasing scientific evidence shows that NALED, after one day of spraying in South Carolina, caused the mass die-off of 2.5 million bees. NALED harmed 22 of 28 endangered species exposed to it. Pressure from the chemical industry could keep NALED on the market despite its obviously negative characteristics. For WFHB, I'm Don Guerra. And I'm Juliana Daly. We love to hear from our listeners. Contact us about stories we've aired or if you have ideas for future stories. Please send emails to earth at wfhb.org. Report feature story, we join Norm Holy for the second half of his recent interview with Jeff Stant of the Indiana Forest Alliance. The first half of Eco Report correspondent Norm Holy's interview with Stant, along with all of our past features, can be accessed online at the same wfhb.org news. One other note for our listeners this morning, Jeff mentions a Mr. Seifert during the interview. He is referring to John Jack Seifert, Indiana State Forester and Director of the DNR's Division of Forestry. And now, on to Norm and Jeff. And I, I'd just we, like to ask you a, a little bit more, more about uh, mature forests. So um, in this area, are there old trees with holes in them that owls are nesting so there's, in? There's tremendous numbers of that. There's all kinds of cavity trees. We couldn't, most of our dendrochronologists, uh, we were given permits to core 48 trees. And uh, uh, so we could, we could do an age analysis of the forest as, as, as the tail end of our EcoBlitz surveys. And so we've been doing that this year. We haven't been able to core most of the beech trees because of the hollow cavities in them. Uh, some of the largest uh, uh, oak and poplar that we found, we couldn't core because they were full of cavities. Uh, so these old, big old trees are, are uh, just quintessential habitats, standing, leaning, and down, alive and dead, for the, the whole range of different creatures that uh, live out in this forest. 
from the bats to the to the shrews to the 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 snakes to the the um, salamanders. There's just uh, a, a whole community uh, that uh, exists in this forest because of these these large old trees and all the standing and down stags, and then the multiple age classes all the way down to the the herbaceous layer on the floor. Uh, but the, yeah, the, the, these big trees are uh, provide great denning uh, for uh, uh, loose and uh, nests sites and, and den sites for, for owls and, and hawks, uh, the broad-winged hawk, a species of special concern. We've, we've seen it, uh, it and the red-shouldered hawk uh, are, are in the forest nesting. They're forest hawks. Actually, the red-tailed hawks are in there as well. Um, so there's, there's a, just a – what they're doing is saying we, they, they, when, when uh, you hear Mr. Seifert uh, dis- respond to our concerns in the media, it's as if he's saying, look, we, we can make it a better old-growth forest. Um, it's, it, it, it's as if there is no forest out there that Mr. Seifert doesn't believe he can't make better or improve upon. Uh, and uh, that reflects the, the, this, this lack of understanding uh, that you know, forest ecologists that are doing this survey for us are, have about, about this forest, that, that this is not something that people made. Um, in fact, most of these forests here were not restored by the Division of Forestry from pasture lands and eroded gullies. They were closed canopy forests when they were purchased by the Division of Forestry to be added into the state forest. The, the purchases were done in the, in the, the, mostly in the, the, from the 20s through the 60s. And uh, in two of the logging plans, they even admit that, well, there's never been a harvest on these sites. And when you look at the aerial photography from 1939, the, the, uh, the large preponderance of the 299 acres was closed canopy forest then. I'd like to ask, um, for just to follow up a little bit more on the bat situation. So you, you say in, in your survey there that you... You found some roosting places of the Indiana bat. Yes, these are maternity roosts. Right. Um, to, to the exact locations of them, I can't give, but one of them is in the the northern track that they're proposing to log. It's just outside the Eco Blitz area, uh, in in what they call uh, uh, tract uh, two, and it's it's just north of the Tecumseh Trail, going down into a ravine. There's a, a, a big, large, dead uh, uh, poplar and, and with exfoliating bark, and, and uh, we counted, uh, what, what, 22 uh, uh, bats in the first emergence count leaving it this, this year, and then nine in the, second, in the second one. That's in the area they're proposing to cut. Uh, and... What about the long-eared bat? Because that bat seems to prefer quite dense forests, which that would certainly be. We have, for the 
the three years that we've netted out there, every year we have caught a northern long-eared bat. The first year was outside the maternity roosting season in the fall. Second two years, which were this year and last year, we skipped a year of the bat netting, and then last year and this year we picked it back up, and we did it during the maternity roosting season. And in both of those years, we have netted female lactating northern long-eared bats without evidence of white-nose syndrome in their wings. That, that, the white-nose syndrome often leaves a scarring on the wings of the, of the animal. And uh, so that's very hopeful uh, information. However, we, we did not track the first female that we caught last year, and we tracked this one, but were unable to find its roost. Um, so we don't know where the roosts are, but we know the northern long ears are out there, and it's not just males foraging, it's females that, that have young somewhere not far off in that forest. Uh, and, uh, but in addition to the, the northern and the Indiana, another bat that there's been a, um, a call for listing, the numbers of which are, are also plummeting, is the eastern pipistrelle or tricolored bat. And that's another forest bat, and it likes even more cluttered than the northern long ear does. And this year we were uh, hoping we might uh, catch one of them, and we did uh, in the EcoBlitz forest. So it's it's uh, we didn't we didn't have the the resources to put a, a tracking device on it, and since it's not listed, uh, there was no requirement that we do that. But we did find this eastern pipistrelle bat also, and. And they're another bat that's in trouble. Eleven of the twelve bats in Indiana are all listed either on the state or federal uh, endangered species list. And they're either rare, threatened, or, or officially endangered, the top listing uh, uh, on, on that list. I, I want to make sure I've driven home two points, which is that they violating commitments to maintain this forest as an older forest so that it can go back into being an old growth forest to the sustainable forestry auditors. They're violating the promise they made to maintain the wilderness characteristics of the area uh, way back in 1980. There's two more points, and that is that they're not willing to even look at the data that we've produced from the EcoBlitz in, in deciding whether to make this decision. They've already, they're already proposing to log and just asking for input on that and acknowledging that they hadn't even looked at the data that we've been submitting for the last uh, uh, four years. They looked at the Indiana Heritage Database of 2013. That's before the EcoBlitz data started coming in on it. Uh, and the last thing I'll say is they're, they're logging right in the heart of the backcountry area, so you, there's no way you won't see it. They, these, this, the harvest they've done previously have been way out on the, the corners. So in the interior of the area, people aren't even aware that they were logging out there. But now they're, they're, there's going to be no way that they, people won't know that they've heavily logged in the backcountry area for the next five or six generations. I, I, I'll, I, I'll leave it at that, I guess. I, I, I've been speaking with Jeff Stant, the Executive Director of the Indiana Forest Alliance. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Norm. Are you an environmental activist, an expert on a particular issue of environmental concern, 
a concerned citizen interested in learning more about local and national environmental issues. EcoReport is seeking volunteer reporters to contribute short headline news stories as well as feature interviews. We provide all the technical training you'll need. For more information, email us at earth at wfhb.org or call 812-323-1200. And it's time now for In Nature, a segment focusing on the flora and fauna of south-central Indiana. The wild turkey is native to North America and is an upland game bird that prefers open mature forests with scattered fields and pasture openings. Turkeys feed by foraging on nuts, berries, and seeds. As with most upland game birds, males and females differ quite a bit. An adult male turkey, or tom, is almost four feet tall, has a wingspan of six feet, and weighs a hefty 16 pounds. Females, or hens, are shorter, seven pounds lighter, and overall their feathers are duller. Despite their weight, and unlike their domesticated cousins now baking in your oven, wild turkeys are agile flyers. In the spring, small groups of courting toms announce their presence to females with a wide range of sounds such as gobbling or clucking or by fanning out their tails. Hens in turn yelp to tell males their location. Females lay a dozen eggs in a shallow dirt depression surrounded by woody vegetation. The newly hatched poults are precocial and leave the nest in less than 24 hours. Turkey eggs and young are subject to predation by medium-sized mammals and hawks while adults are vulnerable to attack from coyotes, bobcats, and humans. By the early 1900s, wild turkeys in North America had dwindled severely to small, isolated populations due to hunting and habitat loss. As a result of habitat management and reintroduction, turkey numbers have rebounded such that there are hunting seasons in all states but Alaska. The wild turkey long has had an important cultural role for many Native American tribes across North America, both for food and for their feathers in tribal rituals. Stay with us now as we highlight upcoming eco-themed events taking place in our area. The Indiana Audubon Society is hosting a Clifty Falls State Park birding trip tomorrow, Friday, September the 22nd from 9 to 10 a.m. The IAS has teamed up with the park naturalists for a special birding morning. Bird watching techniques will be taught and you can test your skills with IAS board members John and Karen Lindsay. Meet at the Nature Center located at 2221 Clifty Drive in Madison, Indiana. Attendance for this event is limited to 18 and interested parties must register in advance through the Department of Natural Resources by emailing Stephen Johnson. On Sunday, September 24th, the Indiana Forest Alliance will have a group hike in the Yellowwood State Forest backcountry, which is a proposed logging area composed of deep woods that have not been aggressively logged to date. Meet at the Possum Trot Road Trailhead at 1 p.m. or in the northeast corner of the Seminary Square Kroger parking lot at noon to carpool. Lunch with Nature Inside a Fish is this month's topic at the Payne Town State Recreation Area at Monroe Lake on Monday, September 25th from 10 a.m. to 12.30 p.m. Dave Kataka, fisheries biologist, will explore the anatomy and physiology of freshwater fish, from fins and scales to gills and bladders. Bring a sack lunch to enjoy during the presentation 
followed by a short hike. Please register by September 22nd by calling 812-837-9967. Learn about those weeds at the Spring Mill State Park, the Lakeview Activity Center on Saturday, September 30th from 9 to 11.30 a.m. Invasive plant identification and treatment will be taught in this physical workshop. Sturdy shoes and long pants are required. Register with Christina Bruce at 812-279-8117, extension 3. And finally, in celebration of National Public Lands Day, take a hike through the Stillwater Marsh North Fork Wildlife Area at Monroe Lake on Saturday, September 30th from 4 to 5.30 p.m. Learn how the area is managed with wildlife in mind. Explore crops planted for wildlife food, check out the nesting boxes, and see where and how the marsh gets flooded each year to create a seasonal wetland and explore the types of trees, plants, and animals that live in the marsh. Meet at the Waterfowl Check Station on Kent Road. Please register by September 28th by calling 812-837-9967. And that wraps up our show for this week. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's news stories were written by Linda Green, Norm Holy, Jonah Chester, and Rebecca Mueller. Norm Holy produced our feature. Rebecca Mueller edited the script, and myself, Juliana Daly, compiled our events calendar. Our engineer is Kirsten Payton, and executive producer is Wes Martin. For WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Don Guerra. Join us on Thursdays at 11.30 a.m. before Democracy Now!, and on Fridays at 5 p.m. before Kite Line for our weekly radio rundown of ecological news. Until then, EcoReport encourages you to take direct action to defend the Earth. You've been listening to the EcoReport, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org. Eco Report is your independent, ecologically inspired news source. For South Central Indiana. Bringing you news that the earth wants you to hear. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Eco Report staff. The email address is earth at wfhb.org. That's earth at wfhb.org.